You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Good morning, church family. My name is Corrine, and I serve in women's ministries. And today's scripture passage is from 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 7. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Whether by word of mouth or by letter, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And our God, Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is God's word. Thank you, Corrine. We are in the middle of a series through the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we're asking, how do we live in a time of uncertainty? How do we live in a time of chaos. And as we come to our text today, we're looking specifically at verses 13 to 15, and what we find is a summary of what I'd like to call the surprising stability of the Christian life. What is that? And how can you, and how can I, experience it? Let's pray together. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our rock upon which we can build a life that not even the greatest storm can destroy. I pray for those who do not yet know this truth, that they would know and understand and believe today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for your church, For those of us that may know it in our minds, but we're not living like it, I pray that you would correct us, challenge us, and encourage us. Spirit of God, would you speak to us all? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. If you knew the world was ending soon, how would you live? It should come as no surprise that most generations throughout history have wrestled 
with that question that we are not the first. And many have responded to this question on the one hand with passivity and withdrawal, totally disengaging from what is happening in the world and shutting down. This has happened at times even in the church. But on the other hand, many more have responded to that question with panic and alarm, as is also the case for many in the church. But the gospel provides a different way. And it might come as a surprise to many. And this response is captured famously by the great author C.S. Lewis in an essay that he wrote in 1948, after World War II, with the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki still ringing in the ears, the world began to wrestle with the reality of living in an atomic age. How do we live in such a world where we could all die? How could we live in such a world where the bomb is going to go off? And C.S. Lewis wrote these words, quote, if we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Amen. <laughs> Though this answer might be surprising to some of us, it actually reflects a Christian conviction about the world. That this present age of human history will always be broken because of sin, but God has done something about it, which gives us hope. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world who came first 2,000 years ago to bring salvation and who will one day come again to bring final judgment and new creation. Christians are those who live in light of these two truths and as a result become a witness to the world. Now, by way of context, back in Thessalonica, some teachers had been spreading misinformation about the return of Jesus Christ. No doubt these false teachers had been speculating about the time and the date of Christ's return, saying it had already happened. It was already upon them now. This, of course, was frightening the believers there, and it's not hard to see why. They were already facing great persecution for their faith and enduring great trials. And so they were vulnerable to thinking that somehow, maybe, they had missed the return of Jesus. But Paul simply replies saying, this has not happened and when we approach the end of the end times, it will be obvious. One of the marks is that lawlessness will increase in the world. 
and that this pattern will continue and culminate, he said, as we learned the other week, with a particularly powerful ruler empowered by evil to deceive that he calls the man of lawlessness or antichrist. But his influence won't last. Jesus Christ will return and overthrow him. So how then should we live? Should we then spend our time in endless speculation? Should we all go to Costco this week, stock up, build a bunker, start our own YouTube channel trying to like, you know, focus in and become expert on geopolitical trends and and have like a doomsday calendar and find out like when is it all going to end and go off the grid? Some of you are like, I like that idea. (laughs) I'm already doing it just in a sprinter van. (laughs) Let me just say, these response, I jest, but these responses would be absolutely foreign to the Apostle Paul. Like Lewis said, we should get busy doing what scripture has always told us to do, an exhortation that he summarizes with two words in our passage, hold fast. And he goes on to describe remarkable stability. So how can we experience this? Let me give you three practical ways you and I can experience and express the surprising stability of the Christian life. And the first is this. You must know the truth. If you want to experience the stability described in the Bible, you must know the truth. The Apostle Paul begins this section with an echo of how he began his letter, with gratitude for them. But when he does so, he expands on where his confidence comes from. Look at verse 13 and 14. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In response to the rumors and the false teaching and the panic and the alarm that the Thessalonian believers were experiencing, Paul feels no panic. Nor does he adopt a panicked approach to their situation. And let me just say, this is not due to his personality. Some might say, well, Paul was just chill. He's just like, whatever, bro. I'm just here for the vibes. That's not why. It's anchored in the work of God. As he goes on to explain, I want you to see how comprehensive these few brief sentences are. In fact, one Bible commentator says these few sentences are a whole theology in miniature. So what truth must we know if we're gonna experience stability in uncertain times. Let me just summarize it in two phrases. 
Our hope is anchored in who God is and what God does. Who God is and what God does. First, he goes on to remind them after explaining to them, hey, no, the second coming of Jesus Christ has not already happened. Yes, the end times will kind of ratchet up, but as quickly as it does, it will be over. But here's where your confidence comes from. First, it's in who God is. And I want you to notice that this whole statement here is Trinitarian. Did you notice? Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father chose you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you through the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence begins in the very nature of who God is, not in who mankind is. What a contrast to where the world is frantically looking for hope. Which candidate this year will be our savior? Oh, which one will lead us to doom and destruction? Whomst amongst the world can rescue us? That's everyone's like running around, panic and alarm. Which philosophy can save us? Oh, which philosophy must we avoid that will doom us? Paul says our hope, our stability does not come from the nature of man. It comes from the nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is who God is. But as a result, he then describes what God does. This is where we find our stability. What does he do? What does God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit do? He saves us and rescues us from sin to himself. Paul reminds us that our salvation is not based upon what we have done, but upon what he has done. He calls and we respond. That's how the Bible often refers to the salvation process. God calls, we respond. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and changes us in the present. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work transforming us from the inside out. That's what sanctification is. It's Bible language for transformation. He makes us new as we believe in the truth. And he glorifies us in the end. He will carry us through. And so in these short verses, we not only have a description of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're also given what theologians call the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. We've been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, thank God, we, will, we shall be saved from the presence of sin. Isn't that glorious? That's what Paul's telling us here. This is where the stability comes from. So here's Paul's perspective. Let the devil mount his fiercest attack against the feeblest saint, and I'm not going to break a sweat. That's how Paul rolls. It's like, you're panicked? Let me just say, let let the rebellion and the end times chaos come, and Paul is unmoved. 
Why? Because we have the eternal stability of who God is and what God does as our hope. This is the truth we must hold fast to. See, our confidence does not come from the strength of the one who is holding, but the object you are holding on to. This is very important. Imagine for a moment that you're at an amusement park and you're going to go on a roller coaster. Not just any roller coaster, but one of the ones that, that goes upside downs and high up and far down. And imagine in this first scenario that there's no harness and no seatbelt. And yet you get in this roller coaster and I'm looking at the track and you say, don't worry about it. I've got this. I would not feel confident. You're like, no, no, no problem. I'm, I'm holding on. You don't have to worry about me. I'm holding on to the coaster. I would have zero confidence. And I would say that if you do, you are deluded. It's not going to go well. But imagine another scenario where you get on that same roller coaster with all its drops and its twists and turns, but you have the industry standard metal harness. Click, 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 coming down over your shoulders, keeping you safe. Perhaps there's even an additional belt. And you look over at me and you get in, you pull the harness down and you're holding on. You're like, I've got it. I'm holding on. I would feel good. I'd feel much better than the previous scenario because the thing you're holding onto is holding onto you. That's how it works in the Christian life. You hold fast to what is holding on to you. You must know the truth and hold on to it. And what is that truth? It is the truth that holds you. If you're going to experience stability, in uncertain times, you must know the truth. It is not a mere intellectual exercise. Now, some of you are all about action. We'll get there. You're like, oh, we don't need another Bible study. Just settle down. You need to know the truth of who God is and what he does. And yet, friends, so much of our time is given to like the 24-hour news cycle or the gossip and drama of our neighbors and yet we spend five minutes reading the word of God and we wonder why we're unstable. You must know the truth. Paul doubles down as he describes who God is and what God does as the source of our confidence. But it is not a mere intellectual exercise. It's not just going to be enough to put up post-it notes on your mirror and on your fridge containing these truths, though it's helpful to be reminded. Because there's a practical aspect, and that's the second way in which we experience stability in uncertain times. You need to know the truth, and you need to live the truth. And notice I didn't say live your truth. No, Paul wants them to put into practice timeless teachings that come from our shared faith. This is not about looking within to find inner strength. It's about looking outside of yourself to the timeless, 
truth of Jesus Christ and living according to it. So notice what he says in verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. It is interesting that the word here, teachings, is also often translated as traditions. Because it has a double meaning. It's both the teachings and the practices that were passed on to them that Paul is referring to. No, he's not referring to the later traditions of the church, but the traditions and patterns of the New Testament apostles. The point here is on both understanding the word of God and then applying it to our daily lives. To live the truth is to practice the truth. So here's a correction for those of you who think, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not all about that activity. I just read my Bible and I never engage with other humans. Okay. Well, you need this point. You need to live it out. If you read the first letter to the Thessalonians, or if you were with us a while back when we studied that book, you will remember that he encouraged them to walk in order to please God. And when the New Testament uses the word walk to describe our lives, it's containing a practical and ethical component. He also encouraged them to grow in their love for other people and to minister to those who are in need. We must walk the talk, if you will. Now, let me be clear. When it comes to beginning a relationship with God, it does happen in one life-changing moment. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, Your entire position and standing before God changes in an instant. You are saved and you are forgiven in a moment. Praise God, hallelujah. But from that point on, we must grow. From that point on, we must grow more And become who God desires us to be. And to grow and to mature is a series of a thousand and one smaller choices every day that shape you as a person. Paul calls us to know and apply the truth of scripture. So that these become the primary habits that shape us. Not like what we're warned about last week by Toyin of doom scrolling and just being captive to our phone. But the spiritual practices commended to us in the New Testament, they may not always seem spectacular, but friends, do not underestimate their power in your daily life. I like to refer to these normal practices as channels of blessing. Daily choices that lead you in the direction of who God wants you to become. Let me give you three practical examples of how we live the truth in order to experience stability. And one of them is related to the first point. We live the truth through learning. We live the truth through learning and study. Paul says, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. 
If you read the book of Acts, which records for us the earliest history of the church, you will notice that one of the first pieces of evidence that the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of those people in the early church, and one of the first distinct rhythms for them as a community was Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. To become a Christian is to begin a lifelong practice of learning from God's word. The church is the community where scripture is read, it is expounded upon, it is explained and applied to all. The backbone of a healthy believer and a healthy community is biblical teaching and learning. This does not go out the window in times of uncertainty. In fact, it should become more and more central. In a time in which more people are prone to give place to speculation, we need to double down and hold fast to the truth and devote ourselves to patterns of learning. Whether it is on your own or it is as we gather on Sundays and explore the word of God together or in your groups, you will never outgrow your need to learn. Some of you say, well, times are tough. Oh, Paul, listen, Paul could say that even more. I mean, look at Paul's resume of suffering. Like if he was on like LinkedIn, he'd have like a premium subscription for his suffering. Like look at his CV. He suffered more than any of us. And yet he never lost his awareness of his need to learn. It's incredible. In one of his letters written shortly before the time that we believe he died, he's in prison of all places. Is he panicked? Is he giving himself to to speculation and rumor and alarm and panic? No. In fact, when he writes what we believe is one of his final letters to young pastor Timothy, and he gets to the end of his letter and it's very practical and he's telling Timothy like, hey, I'm in this prison cell. This is is what he says in 2 Timothy 4.13. When you come back, Timothy, be sure to bring the coat with you. Very practical. Love that. It's like Patagonia. I need it. It's kind of cold in here. If you could bring that to me, that'd be amazing. But then he says, also bring me my books, especially my papers. Paul is going to die. He is in jail. And he's like, I need to learn. If you think that, well, I've been a Christian for 10 years. Like, I kind of know it all. No, you don't. Well, I don't really need to go back to the world. Like I've, I've read the Bible at least once, cover to cover. You will never outgrow your need to stop learning. If it was true for the Apostle Paul that he never ceased to learn, then it must be true for us. And as much as I would love to exhort you on this eloquently, I cannot, but Charles Spurgeon can. The great prince of preachers wrote over 100 years ago this, commenting on Paul's desire to learn. He said, Paul is inspired, and yet he wants books. He has been preaching for at least 30 years, and yet he wants books. He has seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it is unlawful for a man to utter, and yet he wants books. He had written a major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher and reader, give thyself unto reading. 
you will never outgrow your need to practice learning. But then we must apply it together. That's the second way we live the truth. We live the truth through learning and we live the truth in community. Relationships are not sacrificed on the altar of learning. They become the very place of study and application. If you go again to the book of Acts, it not only tells us that they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine and teaching, but also to fellowship, a shared life together. Notice here in our text, Paul refers to them as brothers and sisters. They are to hold fast to the teachings together. So we are to know the truth together, learn the truth together, apply the truth together. And this can, by the way, become a great protection against false teaching. Why? Because community and accountability offers checks and balances in our study. It also reveals our blind spots. This is a sidebar, but it's worth mentioning that if you read the history of most cults, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, they are often began by somebody who completely isolated themselves from other people and came up with a brand new view on God and the Bible all by themselves, usually with like special goggles or something. That's a warning sign, like stay away. It is also interesting to me that the people I know who are obsessed with end times speculation, they tend to be the most likely to separate themselves from the fellowship of the church. I spoke with a man recently who was like, oh, you know, he's going off end times. I've got the chart. I've got everything. I was like, oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church anymore. I have a YouTube channel. Literally, no joke. I had a YouTube channel. I'm like, this is what we've come to. Paul would be like, are you kidding me? Hold fast. Do the things that I told you to do. We are called to know the truth and to live it out, not merely as isolated individuals, but as a family of faith. Like the apostle John says in his first letter, chapter three, verse 18, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. This means that for all time, especially in uncertain times, we commit ourselves to the communal life of the church and we don't divide over petty grievances and matters of secondary importance. One of the marks of the church is that they were applying the truth together, serving one another, loving one another. And that leads to the third way in which we can live the truth. Service and evangelism. I believe they go together. Deeds and words to a watching world. As we apply the truth and live like Jesus, live it out before a watching world, we are a testimony to the world of a changed life as we serve the lost people around us. We become a visual aid to the gospel. We serve and we share the truth. We evangelize. We, we tell the gospel story to as many as possible, as often as possible. You often hear in chaotic times the need 
for Christians to guard the truth against the lies in the world. And of course that is true. But I think there's a misunderstanding oftentimes about what it actually means to guard the truth. We do not guard the truth like you guard gold and jewelry in your house where you like lock it away in a safe. That's not the way the New Testament tells us to guard the truth. The way that you guard the truth is by living it and sharing it faithfully. That's how you guard the truth. And as I share that, I've been reminded this week of a great film that came out a few years ago called 1917. You may have heard of it or you've seen it. It was nominated for 10 Oscars. And one of the reasons it was so praised is because it appears to be filmed in only two continuous shots, capturing the urgency of World War I in just 90 minutes. The urgency is displayed in two British soldiers who must cross over into enemy territory and race against time to deliver news that could potentially save 1,600 lives on the front line. They had a message to guard, but it wasn't like guarding a secret. They did not guard the news by keeping it from people. They guarded the news by getting it to the people. And Paul, of course, is eager to guard the message of the gospel, but he does this not by hiding it and keeping it to himself, but bringing it to others. Hold fast to the teachings I passed on to you, and you must pass them on to others. And like the soldiers of World War I, he does so with great urgency, for he knows it is a message which saves lives. Church, like these soldiers, we carry the truth into daily life. And if we live the truth through study and fellowship and service and evangelism, this will enable us to experience remarkable stability in uncertain times. Because despite the panic and chaos of the world, it doesn't change what you were always supposed to be doing. Which is what Paul says, I've already told you. Now stick to it all the more. But there's one more way in which we are to hold fast and stand firm. It is often neglected and underestimated. But it is absolutely vital that we do. We not only must know the truth and live the truth, but lastly, we must pray the truth. We must pray the truth if we are to experience the stability described here. In fact, it is a testament to the necessity of prayer that after reminding them and us of the steadfast truth of the gospel and exhorting them to hold fast by knowing it and living the truth, he concludes by praying. In verse 16 to 17, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Why should we pray? 
if the truth of the gospel is already a sure foundation, then isn't prayer pointless? Absolutely not, Paul says. Prayer does not make the foundation more sure. It makes us more sure of the foundation. That's what happens when we pray. Prayer is not a way of getting God to do something that he would otherwise not do. It's a way of enabling ourselves to experience what he has promised to do. In prayer, we align ourselves with God, and that is why it is one of the ways that we hold fast and experience stability. Now, next Sunday, we're actually going to look at this prayer specifically in more detail because it is powerful. But I just want to take a moment to emphasize the practice of prayer as a key part of experiencing true stability. We pray the truth individually and we pray the truth collectively. If you want to experience stability in chaotic times, might I even add an election year, (laughs) you need to pray. There is an assumption as you read the New Testament that we have a regular pattern of private prayer as individuals. It means you and I must cultivate this pattern and make it a habit. And then you carry this attitude of prayer into the day, in the car. I mean, I pray in the car out loud, mouth moving. People think I'm crazy when they notice, no, I don't have headphones in my ears. They're like, oh, he must be on the Bluetooth. No, no, he's just crazy. I'm there crying out to God, like banging my steering wheel. I'm I'm praying you bring it into the car at home. And if you have children, nobody even needs to tell you to pray because you just pray naturally. You're so desperate. At work, you pray in your meetings, perhaps before a meeting or after a meeting or in a difficult conversation. In the middle of a conversation, I'm often praying, especially if it's difficult. I'm half listening to the person. Here's the three problems I have with you. And I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, please help me. Spirit of God, just come up on me right now. Like, I need you, Lord. We must pray. So we begin by cultivating this powerful habit of prayer in the closet, if you will. And then we carry this out into our busy day. But we also pray collectively. We pray the truth collectively. After all, Paul is writing this letter to a community. Brothers and sisters, we pray together. This also takes effort. It takes intentionality, which is what we seek to instill even in the rhythms of our church. We have our weekly prayer groups that you heard about this morning where we're encouraging you to get together with other believers and pray We have our first Sunday prayer meeting that we invite all of you to. Like, let's make it a part of our rhythm to pray. We encourage you to pray in your community groups. We pray before service on Sunday. We have a prayer ministry that you will have the opportunity to pray with. And by all means, come and pray. Pray the truth. Show me a Christian who has little to no prayer life, and I will show you an anxious and unstable Christian. We must pray the truth. All of these themes here, they describe Christian stability, what it looks like to hold fast in uncertain times. 
So what about you? Are you committed to knowing the truth and not just holding on to speculation and rumor and exaggeration and the messages that the world is telling you? Are you committed to living out the truth of the gospel in relationship with one another in the church and in service and witness outside of the church and not just living for yourself or on your own impulses? And are you praying what you're learning? These are the ways that we hold fast. And what is it that binds all of this together? Paul's gratitude, his exhortation, and his prayer? What did you notice? It's the love of God. See, twice in this chapter... He speaks of the love of God, which is the very reason that we can have the stability described here. That God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us on a cross for our sins, even while we were sinning against him. It's miraculous. It's the love of God. And that in the present, having saved us, that he loves us still. Despite our drama and our failures and our sin, he is so committed to leading us and loving us and guiding us despite our failure, despite our sin. And that he will love us all the way into eternity and that he will not let us go. That is the foundation for true security. And that is why in his letter to the Philippians, he describes how he holds fast and why. He says in Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We hold on to what is holding on to us. And in saying that, Paul is showing us what makes Christianity so distinct. In other religions, you are the cause of change. Your effort is the cause of stability. But in the gospel, Jesus is the source of our stability. Paul says, Jesus grabbed hold of my life. And that is why I can grab hold of him and be confident. Without the love of God, true stability is impossible. But with the love of God, true stability is inevitable. Hold fast to the one who is holding on to you. Let's pray that it would be so. Heavenly Father, I do pray for anyone here who's never made that decision to trust in Jesus, that they would realize in this moment that there is no stability, no security now or into eternity outside of Jesus Christ. And I pray that right now they would just say from their heart, Jesus, save me. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. I believe you are Savior and Lord. 
And God, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would love your word and know the truth. I pray that we would seek to live it out by the power of the spirit. And even today, would you lead us to pray the truth that we might experience the stability that already exists because of Christ. Spirit of God, would you lead us even now as we respond? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.